Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Daylight Savings Time. Uh, you, you lose an hour of sleep, and what do you get for it? A sermon on Judas. Um, we're, we're actually starting a, a sermon series entitled At the Cross. Randy, unfortunately, could not be with us this morning. Uh, and so he asked me a, a month or so ago if I would like to preach on Judas, uh, telling me that uh, he thought I was the perfect person for this sermon. <laughs> I, I told him I wasn't sure how to take that. Um, my name is Todd Daly. I am professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Theological Seminary. From time to time, Randy will ask me to get up here and preach when he needs to be away, and because no one else is probably available. So uh, this morning, it's going to be me, and uh, we're going to be talking about Judas. So uh, let's pray. Father, we are mindful that we live uh, in a world this morning that is chaotic. And all is not well in your created order. We think of those who have lost loved ones, who have lost family members, who have lost homes, in Japan, and we ask for your care and provision and protection for those who are seeking to restore order. We are mindful, too, of those in Libya um, who are standing up for justice, and we ask that justice would prevail and prevail peacefully, and that you would give our leaders wisdom to do the right thing. And we ask finally that your spirit would come speak to us this morning and help us make sense of Judas. It is in your name we pray. Amen. In a song entitled, With God on Our Side, Bob Dylan penned these words. In many a dark hour, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss but I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. Now throughout history, Judas has been synonymous with betrayer. To be labeled a Judas is to be a betrayer. But the history of Judas is not all that simple. It's far from conclusive. His life is frankly surrounded with a lot of questions. And not everyone even agrees that he should be called a betrayer. For some, Judas was actually a hero. If you witnessed the recent discovery of the Gospel of Judas, written sometime in the second century, in this book, Judas is actually Jesus' closest disciple. He's the only one who gets what Jesus is about. And Judas, in this book, actually does Jesus a favor by sending him to the cross so that the spirit of Jesus can escape the prison of his body. In this book, Jesus tells Judas, you exceed all the disciples. Another angle on Judas is at, uh, that Jesus is really the one at fault here. In the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, Judas tells Jesus, you have murdered, murdered me. You've done it. You have murdered me. It's your fault. You brought me to this. But even if we reject these interpretations, uh, and I think we should, there's hardly any unified picture of Judas in the Gospels themselves. If you just follow the progression 
the chronological order of the Gospels from Mark to Matthew to Luke to John, you see that the the picture gets increasingly negative. Mark can barely bring himself to talk of Judas' betrayal, doesn't even bother recording his death. Matthew goes in more detail, tells us of the wicked conversation that he has with the religious authorities. Luke says that Satan entered Judas when he was about to carry out his betrayal. And by the time you get to John, Judas is clearly a thief who helps himself to the disciples' money, and Jesus himself calls Judas a devil. Well, which of those accounts is trustworthy? Well, actually, all of of them are. Um, We're presented with layers of theological development in the Gospels. But the question remains, what, what do we think about Judas? Does Judas' life only serve as a warning? Um, like my favorite demotivation series slide up here. Um, you may not be able to, to, read, to read the bottom caption. Uh, it's on mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Now, I'm a, I am, I admittedly, I'm a cynic at heart. I find these posters actually refreshing. Um, <laughs> but, but even this assessment of Judas is probably not entirely fair. Was Judas just a misguided zealot, a cold-calculating schemer, victim of historical forces beyond his control, a helpless pawn in God's plan? What can we learn from Judas? I don't know. I've decided to preach on something else this morning, maybe. Um, Actually, I didn't. I I won't betray you, Randy. Um, Three things. I mean, every sermon, it's it's almost obligatory to have three points. We've got three points uh, this morning. What can we learn from Judas' life? And admittedly, the first one is rather depressing. It's rather sobering. And it is this. Discipleship is no guarantee against desertion. It's even possible that our betrayals end badly, like Judas. And when we look at his life, we are admittedly surrounded with a host of perplexing questions which don't give up any easy answer. I mean, how could one of Jesus' disciples turn on Jesus? It's tempting to try to take the edge off of these narratives by claiming that, well, maybe, you know, maybe Judas was never really... Maybe he never bought into Jesus' program. Maybe he was kind of an outsider. Maybe Judas was just a pawn of Satan. But I think it's wrong to view Judas only in that light. And I don't think we have any reason. I mean, the Bible gives us no reason to suspect Judas' devotion until he actually decides to betray Jesus, even though this betrayal is foretold. And I think Matthew reminds us of this reality by using this little phrase, one of the twelve. One of the twelve. He uses it twice in the passages that were read earlier. And I think this is his way of telling us that Judas is not a follower from a distance. He's not an occasional disciple. Judas was not Facebook friends with Jesus. Judas um, was, you know, he didn't follow Jesus' Twitter updates. As, as cool as that would have been. They ate together. They prayed together. He witnessed Jesus heal the sick. Judas passed out bread and fish to the hungry 5,000. 
He was among the 12 who healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, just like the other disciples when they were sent out on their mission by Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus told them, when you do these things, tell them that the kingdom of heaven is near. But over time, something changed. The more Jesus began to disclose of his true identity, the more it became clear, um, much to the consternation of the disciples, that Jesus' end was coming, and it involved suffering and death. We don't know exactly why Judas chose to betray Jesus, but it does seem clear, if you look in all of the narrative accounts of this in the Gospels, it seems clear that Mary's generosity, the pouring out of the expensive perfume on Jesus, anointing him for his burial, was likely the straw that broke the camel's back. Jesus' burial? Wait, isn't, isn't the kingdom of heaven near? Isn't it coming? How could Jesus, who demonstrated his power over death and over disease and over the forces of nature, speak of his own burial? Wasn't the kingdom about really feeding the hungry, healing the sick, bringing the dead back to life? John is more clear. He basically says that Judas had other motives. He used to help himself freely to the disciples' money and that he was outraged with the other disciples at this waste of money. But it hardly seems that greed could have been his sole motivation. The fact that Judas settled for such a small sum, 30 silver coins, the compensation for the loss of a slave in the Old Testament, suggests that he was disillusioned by all that Jesus had come to stand for. And so he seeks out his opportunity. Literally, he looks for a good time to turn Jesus over. And there's no taking the edge off of this (laughs) deceit. I mean, we can all understand Peter's betrayal, can't we? I mean, it it was in the heat of the moment. He fled. All the disciples abandoned Jesus. But Judas' betrayal is premeditated. It is calculating. It is full of duplicity and deceit. And even up to the Last Supper, when Jesus point-blank tells him, you are the one, he says, surely I am not the one you're speaking of. And while we might be tempted to think that Judas' behavior is actually just kind of an isolated event, Um, The Swiss theologian Karl Barth has noted that in reality, Judas' betrayal fits a pattern of sin and disobedience in the nation of Israel. What the nation of Israel has done from the beginning is personified in the person of Judas. And he sets these contrasts up between Mary's response and Israel's. He notes, there never was a time when Israel encountered its God as Mary encountered Jesus, when it was willing to trust him and therefore to dedicate itself wholeheartedly and unreservedly to him. Israel always retained the possibility of serving other gods as well as Yahweh. Israel always tried to buy off Yahweh with 30 pieces of silver. 
And so in the person of Judas, there is, so to speak, handed back, and from the hands of his own leaders, that which he dared to offer God in place of what he owed him. And so when the time is right, in the darkness in the garden, when the crowds are away, Judas greets Jesus with a kiss, or maybe even a passionate kiss, and calls him rabbi one last time. A dark deed under the darkness of night, and with this kiss, Judas sets in motion a string of events that will not be stopped in which lead to only death and destruction. Can I suggest that our attitude towards Judas reveals something about our own hearts? How should we view Judas? Should we despise him? Are we willing to see ourselves in Judas? Are we content like Judas to call Jesus only a great teacher, rabbi, so long as we don't have to call him Lord? I love eternal security. That's great. (laughs) But we never really know when our next act of denial of Jesus' reality in our lives may be one that starts a chain of horrible events that leads to the gallows. And while we're tempted to despise Judas for the sheer evil of this act, and make no mistake, it was evil, we do the same thing. Just one chapter earlier, Jesus reminds us of this when he says, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. And that statement cuts both ways. How often do we kiss Jesus with our words and yet betray him with our thoughts or actions? How often do we speak critically of our brothers and sisters behind their backs? We have done that to Jesus. How often do we betray Christ when a pleasant face is used to conceal a cold or envious or jealous heart? How often do we betray Christ and hand him over or hire him out into our own agenda? whether public or private. We do this privately when we tend to reduce Jesus to someone who exists solely to meet our needs. And we do this publicly when we portray Jesus as either a model Republican or Democrat, confusing the kingdom of America with the kingdom of God. Betrayal. I was out running the other night. I'm on this running kick. Um, It's amazing the amount of sanity it introduces into your life. Um, But I was running one night in the rain, and uh, it was raining quite hard. I had, you know, my water running gear on, and it it was a heavily traveled street with lots of deep potholes, and I was running against traffic, and I noticed there was a car coming toward me that was kind of close to the curb. Um... 
And sure enough, the next thing I know, I am faced with a wall of water and soot and sand just right smack in the face. Um, And for a second, I entertained the thought of letting them know my extreme displeasure (laughs) with a hand signal. Um, but in, in all honesty, you know, I, I say that to my shame because the very next thought I had is, I'm preaching this weekend, and with my luck, it's someone who goes to Windsor Road. Um, um, but and the third thought I had, um, by this time, the Holy Spirit had begun to work. Um, you know, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 kind of was brought to mind and how Jesus responded when he was insulted and condemned and spat upon. And I thought the better of it. Little tiny acts of betrayal. Betrayal, an action that denies the reality of Jesus in my life. With the reminder of those words of Jesus, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. Now, Judas, don't you come too close. I fear that I might see that traitors look upon your face might look too much like me. Remaining faithful to God throughout our earthly lives is always and only a gift of God's grace trusting solely in our own strength or our own discipline or our own character or spiritual routine. While those are good and necessary, trusting in those alone is dangerous. Let those be accompanied by a prayer that goes something like this. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Grant me the grace to stay close to you today and to sense your presence and to be obedient to your sense of leading. Discipleship is no guarantee against desertion. And if discipleship is no guarantee against desertion, it is equally true, point number two, moving in a positive direction, that God still accomplishes his work and his purposes through our sin. Admittedly, this relates to a very thorny and highly contested doctrine of God's sovereignty and human freedom. And there's no shortage of mind-numbing debates out there on what that really means. Let me immediately reject two extreme options that seem to be out there. The first one says that God is so sovereign that there's really very little room for human freedom. It may appear to be free, but since God has really determined everything in advance, including who's in and who's out, um, it's really um, God's in control. We talk about freedom, but still God is in control. Kind of this absolute sovereign monarch. But on the other hand, there's this second extreme which raises human freedom so high that God is reduced to someone who kind of needs our help to accomplish his purposes. This God is limited by our actions, even though he may make up for this limitation through his creativity. And neither of these, frankly, can be defended very well from Scripture. 
the real picture is likely much, much more complex. And so under this heading, I'm just going to talk about a couple of realities that the Bible seems to speak of quite clearly without trying to reconcile them or clean them up or synthesize them into a nice package. What then can we say about Judas' life and God's will? What we do know that Judas' betrayal was clearly predicted in the scriptures. It is spoken of as a fulfillment of prophecy. On three separate occasions in Matthew, we find Jesus um, predicting Judas's betrayal. And on the fourth time, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus tells Judas that he is the betrayer. John is even more explicitly negative in John 6. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. A few chapters later in Jesus' prayer in John 17, Judas is referred to as the one who is doomed to destruction. A literal Greek rendering would be something closer to the son of hell. While I was with them, I protected them, Jesus prayed, and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Elsewhere, Jesus makes it clear that this is a fulfillment of Psalm 41. Judas must play his part. He can do no other, but he also does it freely. If Judas' betrayal is predicted, the second half of the equation says that Judas is nevertheless responsible for his own actions. The gospel writers make no attempt whatsoever to excuse Judas from his sin. They do not portray him as a helpless pawn. He freely rejects Christ and schemes a way to hand Jesus over, making a little money on the side. And only then does Judas finally discover that what he has done is horrific and tries to repent. I like what the early church father Jerome said. Those who deny the apostles' free will and attempt to explain Judas' betrayal by attributing to him an evil nature will also need to explain how a person of evil nature can repent. So we're faced with this mystery that Judas acts as a free man who nevertheless could do nothing else but betray Jesus in fulfillment of an awful prophecy. There's one common Old Testament example that, example that John Calvin used um, to, to, to make these realities clear. Uh, and it comes from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, where in Isaiah chapter 8, God tells the Israelites, that they are going to be punished by the Assyrian king, the Assyrian army. The Lord is bringing up against it, against Israel, the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise above all its channels and overflow all its banks. It will sweep onto Judah as a flood, and pouring over it, it will reach up to the neck and outspread its wings and fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Striking imagery in light of what we've seen in Japan. The Assyrian army is coming like a tsunami of destruction 
and God is using the Assyrian king to accomplish his purposes. But just two chapters later, God has this to say about the king of Assyria. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. God is able to use the wicked nations to serve his purpose even as he holds them responsible for their own wickedness because they're free. And in the same way, God uses Judas and his disobedience to accomplish his purposes. Yes, Judas' betrayal is foretold. Yes, Judas is responsible. But we must ultimately remember that it is God who ends up handing over Jesus for us. And this is where the mystery is at its deepest. For the reality is that Judas' betrayal is instrumental in the handing over of Jesus, not just to die for Judas' sins, but for the sins of the whole world. It is interesting to note that Matthew uses a rather benign word to speak of this betrayal. The Greek here is is paradidomy. Paradidomy. A highly generic vanilla Greek verb. And Matthew uses it on all four accounts of Judas' betrayal. It literally means to hand over or to pass on, which is very general. It it is open to a positive or a negative meaning. Once again, Karl Barth has said that these, these meanings come together in Paul. He is reflected at length on Judas and notes that without Judas handing over Jesus, paradidomy, there would be no apostle Paul to pass on paradidomy, the good news of Jesus Christ. Bart is quoting from 1 Corinthians 11, which reads this, for I, reserved, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice the deliberate inclusion of the same Greek word. Without Judas handing over Jesus, there would be no Paul to hand over the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul is set in the shadow of Judas, just as Judas is set in the light of Paul. And this, I think, is a remarkably insightful and biblical and profound statement by Bart here, when he says, in one sense, Judas is the most important figure in the New Testament apart from Jesus. For he, and he alone of the apostles, was actively at work in this decisive situation, in the accomplishment of what was God's will and what became the content of the gospel. He, yet he is the very one who is most explicitly condemned by the law of God. Finally, we must remember that we are all, in one way or another, implicated in Judas' betrayal. Ultimately, it is God himself who hands over Jesus because of us. Romans 4, he was delivered over 
to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And believe it or not, what we find here in Judas' life is actually good news for us. Because God is not limited by our sin. God is not limited by our sin. He uses sinful people like us to accomplish his purpose. He never condones our sin. He doesn't hesitate to use it, however, to use our brokenness to minister to a lost and broken and hurting world to accomplish his good. In their book entitled Resident Aliens, Stanley Harawas and William Willimon write of one pastor's congregation who was uh, helping a woman who had been assaulted in her own backyard in the middle of the day in broad daylight. She had gone to see a counselor who had, in, who had encouraged her to share her experience with someone else, someone else besides her pastor or besides a family member. So as she was thinking this over with her pastor, she said, I would like to tell Sam Smith. Sam Smith, the, the pastor, said, well, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't you rather tell another woman? Or um, the pastor kind of gently tried to steer her towards someone who, uh, who was more stable, who had their life together. But she kept insisting, no, I think I, think I need to tell Sam. And finally, the, the pastor kind of relented and said, okay, um, but why... Why Sam? And she said, because Sam has been to hell and back. You see, Sam was a recovering alcoholic, an active participant in a 12-step program. She wanted to talk to Sam Smith because, in her words, Sam has been to hell and back And she went on to say, I think he will know what it has felt like for me to go there, and maybe he can tell me how to get back. Hauerwas and Willeman observe that in the view of most people, Sam Smith would be considered a failure or a moral incompetent. But in the church, Sam may well be someone who, like our Lord himself, heals by his wounds. Antonio Stradivari, the world-renowned violin maker, produced some of the best-sounding instruments in the world. To this day, no one has been able to replicate the sound of a Stradivarius. And believe it or not, you can actually measure these things electronically. And that has kind of irritated scientists. And so they've been on this quest to understand what makes the Stradivarius so beautiful, so lovely. And one of the common theories um, that's been discovered in looking at the chemical composition of the wood is this realization that the Stradivarius was covered with a protective varnish which in reality is full of borax and chromium, which attack the wood's integrity. What was meant to be 
uh, a protectant has actually proved to be a corrosive varnish, varnish compromising the strength of the instrument and leaving the wood more fragile. But you see, that weaker wood allows for more resonance. It produces a deeper, more stirring sound. And in the hands of a master, it produces a sound quality and music that is unrivaled. And I think what Judas tells us, even in the paradox of his disobedience, is that we are a lot like those violins. In our own sin, in our own efforts of self-preservation, we bring on damage to ourselves of our own free will despite our best intentions. We're fragile. We're a bit hollow. We've compromised our own integrity. But that is no problem in the hands of a master. It means that we're more qualified to live lives that make music which resonates with a lost and broken and decaying world. Our lives are to be songs which stir deep in the hearts of others. Songs which sing of God's love. God is able to take what we have made of ourselves and accomplish his purposes. And there are several of us among here, doubtless, who have suffered on account of our own misdoings, who are uniquely qualified to minister to those in ways that the rest of us simply can't. Finally, and briefly, the third insight of Judas' life, the events which bring his his end, and very sadly, and give us a final warning, and that is this, to despair of God's forgiveness is to go the way of Judas. To despair of God's forgiveness is to go the way of Judas. Matthew tells us he was seized with remorse. And while scholars still debate to this day as to whether or not that remorse was genuine, it certainly seems that he repented. He confessed his sins to the chief priests who told him he was on his own. He returned the money, throwing it into the temple, and he went away and performed capital punishment on himself. Is that not repentance? Yeah, the devil may have entered Judas for a time, but Judas had done this of his own accord. This was no demonic possession but it was Satan working as the great deceiver, deceiving Judas just long enough. It brings to mind that well-worn, I think, but useful phrase that we never get out of sin what we go in looking for. And while Jesus' death was an atoning death for the sins of the world, Judas' death was one of disobedience. The tragedy is that Judas considered himself his own judge instead of judging himself in the light of Jesus. The real tragedy of Judas' life is that he despaired of Christ's forgiveness, acting instead as his own judge and jury. And this tragedy can be 
uh, it's, it's equally real in our lives when we are unable to forgive ourselves. Not because our sin isn't all that bad. Not because I'm okay, you're okay. In fact, the depth of our sin only becomes clear in the reality of the cross. Judas' life is tragic because the condemnation which he freely brought on himself was taken up by Jesus Christ on the cross. Judas was looking for forgiveness in the wrong place. He went to the religious authorities when he should have gone to the cross. He could no longer bear the weight of his own sin, and he didn't have to. Some of you this morning still haven't managed to forgive yourself. Maybe you've betrayed a spouse. Maybe you're estranged from your own kids. Maybe you've had an affair. Maybe you had an abortion when you think you were thinking that was the only option available. Some of you may be thinking that you have reached the end of God's forgiveness over your struggle against pornography or excessive anger or the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of approval. And it has robbed you of the joy and life that are in Christ. Because in Christ, you are forgiven. We don't like to look at Judas because he warns us of what can happen when we despise ourselves. Yet Jesus remains faithful to us. He doesn't look at us with that same look of scorn with which we look at ourselves but he rather invites us back to his table and calls us to his side. He waits ready to kiss you with lips that say, friend. It's time to let it go. Christ forgives you.